Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse. I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is a show all about saving the best and burning the rest. It sure is. And today we are so lucky to have the one and only Ben Reynolds back with us today. Welcome, Ben. Hey, good to be with you guys again. Yeah, I think you, I think you're actually getting close to being the most recurring guest now. Yeah, this is mm. three or third or fourth this- time. Three? Hmm. I'm, I'm leaning the, towards four. I think it could be the third. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yep, yeah, ben, ben is with us today and we're really excited. We're going to be talking about Jesus, which is always a good topic to, to talk about. Um, it sounds so broad when I say it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, um, Josh, isn't every episode we do about Jesus? Yes. Yes, it is, Pastor. <laughs> mm, definitely uh, well we like to think so anyway um yeah. <laughs> uh no but i guess what we're looking at today is um the idea of the historical jesus um and so there's lots of cool stuff to unpack there and um it's a big topic so right now we don't exactly know where we're going to go with it well we do know have a bit of an idea but um yeah we're just going to kind of navigate through it and we're really excited but before we get to all of that we have to do the question of the week which is always a great time. So basically, Ben, we just ask a random question and all of us have to answer it. Oh, um, that's right. Because last yeah. time Ben was on, we weren't doing this. This is yeah. a new This is a new development. This is a, a show. New feature. Yeah, yeah, this is an evolution of our show. <laughs> Love but it. it's an easy question. It's okay. Okay, so um, very timely. As of today, as we're recording this, New Zealand has just moved from level four to level three three in terms of our COVID-19 lockdown um, and defense strategy and uh, yeah, getting on top of it. So basically with level three, there's been some small um, changes. Businesses have opened again, but um, for, our, for our, like a day-to-day life, it's pretty much the same as it was in level four, except now you can buy things. Um, but my question is, what do you miss most about our pre-COVID-19 New Zealand? Hmm. Or like, what's one thing that you really miss and that you're kind of like, oh, can't wait to get back to that when this is all over. Would you like to go first, Ben? Or would you like me to go first? Um, There's a few things, I guess. Uh, I I was reading the news this morning and apparently there were some quite significant queues at the drive-thru from McDonald's and KFC and and some of these (laughs) other places. And and I have to be honest, I, I do have a hankering for some good Indian Ooh. So that that's something that I have missed, and and maybe can indulge in some of that this week. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, on a more serious note, I think just just the, the physical presence with people, just being able to sit around a, a table and have a meal together, or oh. you know, just sit and chat, and um, feeling a little bit zoomed out at the moment. With all the yep. online calls, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, just the physical presence is going to be something I miss, and something that I'm really looking forward to experiencing again. Yeah, that mm. that Zoom fatigue, that's real, hey, like people yeah. everywhere. Oh, goodness. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no. I, I think I, I'm very similar. Like there's a the superficial stuff like 
McDonald's and, and all that sort of stuff. I would like to go to McDonald's at some point. Not that I went to McDonald's that much beforehand, but like it's when you don't have something, you miss it. Like, you know, just the option of having it is nice, but not being able to have it makes you miss it even more. Um, there's, I, I do miss going to my local coffee shop and um, getting a nice long black and um, being able to just um, get their beans. They roast their own beans and I miss that. I'm having to buy pack and save beans, which some of them are okay, but I've had a few hit and miss opportunities because I'm grinding my own beans now because I use a, a dripper. A drip over. I, I knew you were going to bring it up. I knew it. I I'm was sorry. just waiting. I'm like, I know <laughs> Jesse's going to bring up that new dripper that he bought at some stage in this podcast. I know it. I knew it. I couldn't guys, believe it. it's happened guys, in five minutes. Guys, I brought. I bought a Hario V60. It's the coolest thing ever. No, it's it is pretty cool though. Anyway, I miss that. But that's not the real thing. That's just fluff. What I really miss behind me, if you're watching the YouTube video, you can see the board games. I miss actually being able to sit down and play a board game with my friends, mm. being able to have four, five, six people around the table, chatting, laughing, eating unhealthy food and playing a game. It's just I've got all these games and I can't play them. It's really frustrating and mm. I really miss it. So it would be. Yeah. 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 No, that'd be fun. I'd, I'd actually be really down to play a board game right now, now that I think about it. But. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, for me, it's like, okay, the, the less serious one is, um, like sushi or like specifically it's probably like Donbury bowls. Oh, Ooh. I miss it so much. I just, I can't wait, but I don't know if any of those places are open where I am yet. So I don't know if they have like contactless pay and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if they can open, but I'm going to check this week. So I really miss that food wise, but the biggest thing I miss, like the more serious thing is like, I'm a hugger. I really miss giving people <laughs> hugs, you know, and I know as a pastor, it's all like side hugs and stuff, but still like, I just miss like physical contact, like shaking someone's hand, giving someone a high five, a fist bump, all that sort of stuff. Ah, oh, I just miss it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's big. I didn't realize probably how big a deal it was to me until, mm. yeah, until I've had like a fast from it really. <laughs> mm. Yeah. It's so. the stuff we take for granted. Hey. Yeah. 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 Also haircuts. I'm, I can't wait to get mm-hmm. my haircut. <laughs> I was so lucky. I got a haircut the week, the Friday before they announced they were going into level three and then subsequently level four. So I was like, whew, dodged a bullet there. Otherwise, it would be absolutely like I would be, yeah, overgrown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I missed that too. <laughs> <laughs> just, just turn your head slightly so we can see. Yeah. <laughs> Majestic. I will, I will say it's pretty. It's actually hard to tie up at the moment. It is pretty long. I probably am due for a haircut. But how often do you get your haircut? Pretty much like once, once a year, maybe. Okay. <laughs> or maybe like once every nine months. Yeah, not very frequent. So, are you due? Or are you not due for one? I think I am due. Last time I got it cut, the okay. I'm not going to go too far into the story, but the woman cut it way too short, and I was really angry. So it's been a very long time since my last cut. Okay. But it has grown back pretty fast. Um, okay. But yeah, so I, I think I am due. I wasn't sure because it's like cut it way shorter than normal. So I wasn't sure when I'd be due next, but now it's like getting hard to manage. So I think mm. I am due for a cut soon. But I'm not really that concerned about it. I, I can see why you guys would be more concerned about why haircut time, you know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, for me, when it gets longer on the size, this is the longest I've had mine for a while you can see all my gray hair it's like <gasps> what where did that come from 
It's a crown of wisdom, Ben. It's a crown of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to remind myself of that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, okay, cool. Um, don't forget, guys. Let us know what uh what you miss most about the pre COVID nineteen world. I guess and what you're most looking forward to going back to. Um, and you can let us know anywhere, social media, anything. Okay. Um, but let's get into it. Um, so. Ben, just for those of us, uh, those, those of us, not us, but uh, those of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with um, with you, can you just give us a quick summary of who you are and what you do with your time? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I serve as a pastor, a uh, church pastor here in Auckland, um, in East Auckland, and I'm also the chaplain of a primary school in central Auckland. And I've been doing that for the last, um, well, this is the seventh year now. So I really enjoy doing that. Uh, it's a lot of fun and married um, and have uh, one uh, little toddler running around the house, which has been a lot of fun and very distracting when you're trying to do work <laughs> at home at the moment under the, the lockdown. Um, but yeah, we, we've been having a ball. So just, um, yeah, really awesome to spend extra time with the family at home and uh, see our little Sarah growing so quickly and learning to speak and, and say new words. So, so cool. yeah, yeah, it's a little bit about me. Mm, very cool. So today we're here to talk about, we mentioned at the top of the episode, um, the historical Jesus. Um, so I suppose for our listeners, Ben, what is it about this particular subject that you find uh, so compelling? Um, and what do you hope that we're going to get out of our discussion today, just off the top. So I think the the importance of it is, um, uh, first of all, uh, understanding who Jesus is, uh, because uh, it, we'll, we'll probably get into this in more detail shortly, but sometimes we have a, a picture of Jesus that's more heavenly than historical uh, and, and can, can come detached from what actually happened in the, in the first century. So it, it grounds um, our understanding, uh, our picture, our view of Jesus in history, uh, in real life, flesh and blood, uh, historical reality. And so I'm hoping that um, throughout the course of our discussion, uh, depending on where we end up, I'm, I'm hoping that at some point uh, it'll just help to affirm, um, first of all, our faith in Jesus as, as a historical figure, someone who is real, uh, and also just give us a clearer picture ultimately of who God is, because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so that the closer we can get to understanding Jesus and having a, a clearer, richer, deeper view of him, uh, that ultimately gives us a, a clearer picture of God himself. Mm-hmm. I, d- so- I don't know if this is a, a good place to start. Sorry, did I cut you off there, Josh? No, 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 it's good, good. I don't know if this is a good place to start, but I, when I was growing up, there was definitely a part of academic scholarship and maybe this wasn't part of when I was growing up maybe I was given something that was a little bit older but I I was always faced with the question of did Jesus really exist and that was part of my of my upbringing of course as a you know a fairly conservative SDA growing up there was always the answer of yes of course Jesus existed but that was always a question in my mind of did was Jesus actually a real person and is that still the the case today as far as 
you know, what you've been reading, is that question still a valid question that we should be asking? Um, <laughs> the, the, the only, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head some examples of, of any serious scholarship uh, that still denies the existence of Jesus, but I, I honestly can't think of any. Uh, I, I think there, there's kind of this movement, uh, they're called mythicists, or something like that. Anyway, you, you, you can Google it and, and check it out. But but no, no one seriously questions whether Jesus actually lived. Um, because if, if you do that, then you have to question basically every aspect of ancient history. Okay. Um, because, because there's more um, evidence that Jesus existed than for a lot of other stuff that we just take for granted, you know, through, through Greco-Roman history. Mm. Yeah. I just wanted to ask... Yeah, I just wanted to ask that question right at the top of the episode because I know that maybe that's a question that some people still have Yeah, because maybe that's a leftover from a bygone era of of historical um, academia. Yeah, continue, sorry. Yeah, no, it's a good question to ask and, and, and maybe some people do still wonder that. Um, but I think once you start digging into the evidence, uh, I, I mean, there, there are some very simple things if you just think about the impact um, of Jesus and Christianity on history. Every time you write the date, uh, you're acknowledging that it's been 2020 years since, you know, some significant event in history happened. You know, that, certainly the, that's the case for us in the Western world. Mm. Um, and the impact on literature and music and, and so many other things. Uh, so you, you can't deny that that's, that, that just didn't come out of thin air. Right, that had to be mm. grounded in, in some historical reality of some sort. Now, people can debate over whether Jesus, you know, uh, was divine in any sense. You, you can debate about whether he did miracles and that kind of thing. But yeah, as I say, you, you can't. You, you have to. You have to do business um, with with the source of the Christian movement and and basically the the foundation of um, a lot of what we experience in the West. Yeah. Mm. Where where would you say is like the, I guess the best the best place to start in, um, or one of the best places to start in unpacking the historical Jesus? Then let's yeah uh, let's look at um, basically the the framework in which the discussion is normally taking place. So uh, the, the it, it falls into this thing called Lessing's Ditch, uh, um, and and is based on this. 18th century philosopher, um, Godhard Lessing, where there was kind of the separation between historical fact and matters of faith. So Lessing's ditch. So th th there's this separation that exists between what we can historically verify and what people believe by faith, you know, that, that can't be proven, that kind of thing. And so that kind of set the divide. And, and a lot of that was um, uh, fueled by in, the Enlightenment um advancements and the other philosophical movements that were happening during the 17th, 18th centuries. And so you, you kind of have this split between the, the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. Uh, so is there a connection between those or are they two separate things? Um, and it's a very important question to ask because as, as I mentioned earlier, over time, um, uh, the church has, you know, accumulated a lot of tradition and a lot of different understandings of Jesus, which, it can be somewhat detached from history mm. uh, because it, it's something that goes on in our belief system um, and that kind of thing. 
Mm. So yeah, that, that's probably the best place to start in terms of the conversation because it's like, well, where, what connection, is there any, any connection? So most liberal scholarship says that there's a complete separation, you know, so we have the Jesus of history. He didn't perform miracles, half of what he's claimed to have said he didn't say, and they had their criteria and skepticism for that. Um, and then you have more conservative scholars that say, no, actually there needs to be a connection between these two. Um, mm. th- th- there has to be, um, you know, the, the Jesus of faith again, as mentioned, is not something that came out of thin air. So it has to be grounded in some historical reality. But to what extent is that the case? Uh, so it's the, the history has got to inform the, the faith. So you've got the, the the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. How do how do we reconcile these two things? That's interesting because I know, growing up, the Jesus that I was introduced to in church was much more of a philosophical spiritual figure, which maybe. I don't know, maybe Jesus was more of an amalgamation of his teachings and the theology and doctrine than an actual person. And I didn't realize that until until now, that the Jesus that I was introduced to very early on was more of a symbol, more of an idea, even though he was portrayed as a person. He was more of a person that was represented by symbolism and doctrine than an actual person. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't remember who it was, but some historian uh, has said that, again, for many people, their view of Jesus is that, you know, when he when he was here on earth during his earthly ministry, his feet were like, you know, hovering above the ground, you know, like there, there, there was still this kind of disconnect because Jesus is perfect and holy and, and sinless and all of that. So he, he didn't get his hands dirty or his feet dirty, you know, in, in the reality of human experience. So. Uh, yeah, and, and and so this is one of the important things for Christians when it comes to historical Jesus studies. Uh, we shouldn't just shun that and say, oh, that's skeptical scholarship, that there, is, there are some very important questions that are raised uh, that come out of that. Um, yeah, because is Jesus someone that we can really relate to? Is he someone that really did experience what we experience? Uh, or, or is he, like Jesse said, just some symbol or abstract or spiritual being um, that, that somewhat disconnected uh, what we experience. Mm. Yeah, I I actually remember um, at college somebody, I don't know, we were in some like group Bible study in the boys' dorms or something, and one guy was like, man, can you imagine like actually seeing Jesus? He would have just looked so beautiful and radiant and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the idea was that he just looked like everybody else, you know? <laughs> and the guy really struggled. He's like, what? What do you mean? No, this is like, geez. like it was really hard for him to wrap his head around that. Um, so it's, I think yeah, there is an interesting distinction and I guess that, that ditch we have to cross there. And <laughs> I, yeah, that's, really, that's super interesting. Because another thing is we when we grow up, um, those of us who have grown up in the church, we, we do have a particular image of Jesus, which is more informed by the paintings, um, or if we come from the mm-hmm. Catholic tradition, the, you know, the, the statues that we see of Jesus and the iconography and that kind of thing. Yeah. The blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. Precisely. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, you know, Jesus wasn't, um, you know, an Aryan, you know, some 20th century European yep. <laughs> person, you know, he, he, he was very much Jewish. Uh, which has been part of what's known as the quest for the historical Jesus that went through several movements. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, 
uh, certainly in, in our tradition, the, the Adventist tradition, a, a lot of our views growing up have been informed by Uncle Arthur's bedtime stories. Mm. That's uh. that's the picture of Jesus that we have. Um, is there is there truth to that? I think so, but but is it grounded in historical reality? That's what we want to make sure it, it is. So, Ben, where would you suggest that we start when starting to unpack unpack Jesus as a person in his setting um, within the context of the the first century Jewish world? Um, where would you suggest people start when talking about him as a as a person? I think we've got to start with the evidence that we have. Uh, so not our preconceived ideas about who he is, uh, not the, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or the, the pictures or paintings or whatever. We, we've got to look at the evidence that we have. And fortunately, when it comes to Jesus, we've got so much uh, evidence. It's Some historians refer to it as an embarrassment of riches because we just have so much to deal with. You know, when it comes to a lot of other <clears throat> historical uh, figures, historical events, uh, whether it's things like, you know, the, the Persian Wars or Alexander the Great or, or a lot of that other stuff, we, sometimes we're depending on a single source that was written decades, sometimes centuries after the fact. Mm-hmm. And so we, when it comes to Jesus, um, and, and we can go into this later if you want to, uh, we, we have a lot of uh, very, very early evidence uh, and, and record of what Jesus did and said. Uh, so we, we start with the Gospels. It's, it's the best place to start. We have four accounts uh, of Jesus. We also have uh, Paul and his letters. And Paul was actually writing before the Gospels were, were written down. There was oral tradition before the Gospels were actually, uh, the, the oral tradition was put into writing um, for us. So so there's, there's Paul. Um, there's the other early Christian writers as well. You've got James. Um, you've got Jude. You've got the book of Revelation. Um, Etc. So, so, so we have all of that evidence, Uh, and then if people want to be skeptical about the Bible, because a lot of people are for some reason, they want to hold the Bible to a different standard to every other historical source. So, (laughs) if they prefer (laughs) something else, you've got Josephus, you know, who makes a couple of references uh, to Jesus. You, you have Mm -hmm. Tacitus, who talks about um, the the persecution of Christians under under Nero. Uh, You've got Suetonius. You've got Pliny, you've, you've got all these other sources. And so you've got to start there with the evidence. So, so what do these actually tell us about who Jesus was, um, what he did, what he said, and, and so forth? So that's where you've got to start. Mm. Um, so those, the ones outside of the Bible, like Josephus, um, are they all just ancient? I know Josephus was a um, Jewish historian. Um, are they all just historians? Um, like, is that so that? Would people just be reading a bit of, uh, I guess, extra biblical history if they had to check those out? Yeah, and a lot of it you can just find online. Um, yeah, there's dozens and dozens of websites. And, of course, you've got the sceptical scholars who question the references to Christianity or to Jesus, but, you know, that's, I guess, kind of to be expected. Um, but, but, but the fact of the matter is that, yeah, very, very early on, we, we had these sources in the New Testament itself and then other contemporaneous sources that that are mentioning this this figure called Jesus. Uh, and, and interestingly, even, even these extra-biblical sources, they don't doubt the fact, they don't deny the fact that Jesus was a, a miracle worker. He was a healer. Mm-hmm. 
which is interesting. So, you know, they, they were less skeptical back then than we are today. They're like, yeah, okay, we admit the fact that, you know, that there are these traveling preachers and, and healers and, and strange stuff does happen from time to time. Mm. Uh, so, so there's never any denial of that, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it's often quite difficult for us as modern people to imagine a world where it's generally accepted that miracles or magic and or just at the very least supernatural events are just, this is just part of our world, right? Like I, I find that very difficult even, even having spoken to people from different parts of the world that have experienced what could only be described as supernatural experiences it's very difficult for me to get my head around anything that isn't material, concrete, and easily explained by the laws of, of science. Even as a Christian, you know, I, that's, it's a, I, I can imagine that for somebody who doesn't have as strong a faith or perhaps doesn't have any faith would find that even more um, difficult, especially when you're reading the miracles of Jesus. Yeah, and that's probably one of the, the major reasons why people doubt Jesus and why they're skeptical um, about Jesus. Certainly, again, because we, we're talking in a Western context, uh, because we, we're really the odd ones out. If, if you look at any other culture, um, both ancient and modern, they accept the fact that there's a supernatural. They, they have no problem with that. This whole idea of atheism and, and the split universe between natural and supernatural is a modern thing. It's only been around the last 300 years in the West. Um, yeah, but, but that's probably the one major objection that people have to accepting the historical reality of Jesus and what the Gospels claim uh, is this idea of miracles. Mm. Um, but again, it comes back to your worldview. Uh, so a, a lot of the skepticism traces its origin back to a philosopher, David Hume, uh, who was uh, writing in the 18th century. And his, his premise uh, that many people are bought into is, is basically, you know, we don't believe these things happen because we just know from modern experience that these things don't happen. So it's, it's a very circular kind of argument, but, you, but you're basically assessing the rest of the world um, on the basis of your own experience. So I've never experienced miracles. So therefore miracles can't really happen. Mm. And, and that for whatever reason, that's just really caught on. And, and a lot of people just, just take that for granted. Um, but, but again, we're, we're kind of odd in the West because if, if you go to other countries and, and talk to other people, they experience miracles all the time. Like you mentioned before, Jesse, you know, that the supernatural is something that's very much a part of, of their experience. Uh, and so I, I guess the, the lesson for us um, is, is not to, not to make our experience universal because it's silly as, as like, you know, maybe one of our um, brothers from the Pacifics saying, you know, I, I don't believe in snow because I've never seen snow, <laughs> you know, and, and you, yeah. you, you could multiply that out. You know, I, I don't believe that Paris exists because I've never been to Paris or, or whatever, you know, mm. it, it's, it's quite a, a, a ludicrous claim to be able to make that, to, to judge everyone else's experience on the basis of your own. Mm. like those oh, I was going to say it's like the, that group of people who uh, they I think they coincide with flat earthers a bit but they don't believe Australia is a real place they think um, Australians <laughs> are all paid actors and um, it's all just a big hoax so yeah I don't know 
uh, just because to them it's uh, it seems like such a strange land, and they're like, "Have you ever actually met an Australian?" No, but you haven't, so they can't. It can't be a real place. I'm like, that's the worst logic I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> yeah. I do find it. I do find it interesting that you know, as you said, we don't think about miracles in the sense of, well, I've never seen water being turned into wine, or I've never seen somebody's bones miraculously heal after they've been fractured in a in an accident. And yet it's funny, you know, because there are things that happen in our day-to-day lives that maybe if we were to think about them logically, do seem quite mundane, you know, like winning the lottery or getting that promotion at work or having the stars align perfectly in on a a date or, or something like that. And we would say, oh, that's a miracle or, you know, something quite mundane. So, it's like in some ways we're double dipping. You know, we we deny physical miracles or like the out quote unquote outlandish miracles that we see in the gospels. And yet, I think we still experience and acknowledge miracles in our own Western sort of uh, way even today. Mm-hmm. But it's just not God behind it. Yeah, it's the universe yeah. or it's chance. Yeah, it, it's the stars or some yeah. other thing. Uh, yeah, but, but you're right. Uh, th- there is a, and, and maybe we'll get into this in another podcast, but uh, th- there is this very um, confused way that, that a lot of people you know, look at the West. So they'll, they'll deny the supernatural when it comes to Jesus and, and stuff like that. But then they'll go and read their horoscopes every day and yeah. other stuff like that. And they'll get right into Harry Potter and, and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, so, so there is a little bit of a, a contradiction going on there, but, but yeah, when it comes to miracles, uh, there, there is so much evidence uh, to, to support it. We, we may not be able to prove it scientifically because science proves uh, or demonstrates what can be repeated, um, but but history records what can't necessarily be repeated, and, and so you, you, we've got to make that clear distinction in our minds between what science is able to tell us and what what history, in terms of documenting stuff that happened, uh, whether or not it uh, fits within our worldview or not. Mm-hmm. There was a there's a book uh, if if your listeners are interested, it's it's quite a um, massive book 1200 pages he really needs to stop writing books that big he's a new testament (laughs) scholar and historian by the name of craig keener and like the guy's never written anything less than 500 pages Uh, but 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 if he condense, you can probably watch maybe a couple of his lectures for free on youtube where he kind of condenses a lot of the material but uh, he, he was working on this massive commentary on the book of acts and he he got to some of the miracles in the early part of acts and he started creating this footnote and, and the footnote just grew and grew and grew because he was trying to document different things to support some of these miraculous claims. Like, you know, here's, here's a, a similar thing that happened in Africa on this date and here's something that happened here, et cetera. And I think he said when his footnote got to like 150 pages, he decided to turn it into its own book. And so he did. <laughs> and then it's turned into 1,200 pages. Wow. Um, so the first part of the book, he, he, he unpacks and uh, critiques this philosophical construct that, that goes back to David Hume and others, this real skepticism towards miracles. And then the, the bulk of the book is just uh, documented example after example after example of miracles happening all over the world, um, which, which yeah. many of which are very similar to, to the Gospels, even, you know, people being raised from the dead, um, miraculous healings of terminal illnesses and stuff like that. So, wow. Yeah, I, um, I was... I was um, listening to something 
recently. And uh, I can't, sorry, I can't source what it was. But I found the point interesting that um, they were saying that um, no matter what your worldview is, whether you're atheist, agnostic, or you have to, um, or Christian, you have to have like somewhere to put the fact that like there is many, 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 many documented cases all around the world from America right through to Africa, everywhere of you know, people being under some sort of attack or like having some sort of mental convulsion or something like that. But we would say it's under like demonic oppression um, under that. And that the only thing that stops it is saying the name of Jesus. You know, that's, you have to fit that into your worldview somewhere, whether you don't believe in Jesus or not. If you think that's all just psychology, that's fine, but you have to have a place for it. And I think when people actually come to terms with the sort of evidence there is of um, documented miracles, even today, it does become difficult to, I don't know, fit it all into your worldview, I think. Um, for somebody who's desperately trying to say that God God isn't real and doesn't do anything, I'm like, okay, well, you can believe that if you want, but where are you going to put this stuff? Like, how's it going to work for you? Is it all psychology? Because that's it's pretty incredible if it is. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's my take on it anyway. It doesn't fit very neatly in, into a, a secular worldview, that's for sure. Mm. And and it is a worldview because if you've already just if you already have this presupposition that our miracles don't happen and you know the miracles like what we see in the gospels were just part of some primitive gullible ignorant culture, yeah, then you're not going to be able to have any space in your worldview to accept modern miracles when they happen. You'll just be trying to explain it, you know, medically or scientifically or whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the point remains the same that that we can't use our personal experience. Um, to, to judge everyone else's experience. We can't make ours universal. We, we have to be open to the possibility that some, some weird stuff happens. And, and so the question then arises is, well, how do we fit that into our worldview? How do we make sense of these miracles and, and things like that? Mm, yeah. Awesome. So that, that's the big thing, I think, for a lot of people when it comes to reading the Gospels historically. Mm. Even mm. as a Christian, I you know must admit that I found it quite difficult sometimes just wrapping my head around the way these things happen and i think in some ways what i've done and perhaps what a lot of people done is we've compartmentalized that our experience so like we live in this modern advanced era but jesus lived in this ancient magic voodoo ooga era where miracles were real and everything happened but then suddenly you know they don't really happen anymore you know because as you say it's all it's all contextualized within my experience. You know, I could look at Jesus's miracles and go, well, I haven't seen, you know, somebody miraculously feeding 5,000 people from a couple of loaves of bread and two fish, you know. But then I have to think of the times in my life where I actually have put God to the test or something has happened outside of my control. Like I remember once when I was entering uh, Avondale, um, I I had to yeah <laughs> I had to um, I had to to sit a test and I had to get over a certain percentage to be able to get into Avondale and I had a specific number in my head and I told God you know I want to get this specific number on my test to I was kind of putting out a fleece which I know is not a good idea generally speaking, but I was young and I was um, dumb and I thought, you know what, I want to test God. 
And so I did. I put out a fleece and I said, hey, God, if you um, give me this specific number on my test out of 100, so it's 1 to 100, and I think it was like a 72. I can't even remember what the number was. Um, it wasn't that impressive. And God actually, I believe, gave me that number when I got my test back. Um, some I remember somebody called me. I was in the middle of driving to Canberra and I had to pull over and they told me what score I'd gotten and it w- I was just blown away and I was like, well, I guess I'm going to Avondale then. And I know a lot of people could listen and go, oh yeah, well, that, it sounds a bit contrived. It sounds a little bit like coincidental, like sure, that's just a really big coincidence. But at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know. There's no way to verify that, but that's my personal experience. So, who am I to judge somebody else's experience from a different culture, from a different time and the way that God worked in in their lives? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's an important point because if if we have in our worldview an openness to miracles taking place, then we'll see them every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, the, the mundane things of life that we just take for granted. Well, some of those, I think, are miracles because it doesn't necessarily have to be this way. Um, yeah, so w- w- once that's part of your worldview, all of a sudden you begin to see things differently. And, mm. and you can say, well, you know, if you believe in God, you can say, well, God, you know, thank you so much for this miracle today. Even mm. if it's something as simple as just waking up with good health in the morning. Um, mm. It's a miracle. You think of all of the odds that are against us, especially with coronavirus at the moment. It's like, well, you know, that's not such a silly thing to take for granted anymore. Um, mm. Yeah, so so miracles can happen all the time, even in the smallest of ways. We we just always want to you know look out for the big ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, something that defy the laws of gravity or whatever. But um, <laughs> but you know you, you're not going to believe that anyway if if you're not open to the smaller ones. Mm, that's true. That's Interesting. True. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back right after this. I know one of the criticisms that I've heard of um, Jesus's, uh, the accounts of Jesus's life, and especially um, some of the more extra, um, extraordinary supernatural elements, is the the whole mythologization, myth- mythology. I don't even know. That's probably the wrong. <laughs> is there like a is there like a proper word for that? I don't know. <laughs> um, but the whole turning of Jesus's story into a myth, a a, a supernatural. Um, sort of turning him into this this um, figure. I know that um, for those of us who have uh, looked into uh, historical myths like King Arthur, for instance, you know there was obviously some sort of historical precedent for that story in some way, shape, or form. But the story grew through campfire. You know, somebody told the story around a campfire, and somebody else took that story and embellished a little bit or changed a few elements and. Uh, one of the things that I've heard is that people have done the same with with Jesus's story. So when we read the, those first-hand eyewitness accounts and those second-hand, maybe third-hand accounts through the epistles and through the gospels, is there an element of mythalize? I'm going to not uh, turning it into a myth uh, through embellishment or changing of details. Is that a, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Or you could say, you know, it, it turned into a legend. You know, yeah. legends about Jesus. You know, there, there was a real person called Jesus, but there was a whole lot of legend that grew up after him um, in, in the telling and retelling. It's an important question uh, to consider. And, and there's a lot of things to, um, 
uh, go into on that because you, you, you're looking at anthropology and sociology. So the way that they told these stories, uh, the contexts, uh, who the storytellers were, there's a whole idea of memory, the, the part that that plays in it. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to memory um, and, and the retelling of the stories, that there has been some debate about the extent of, of what we might call the modern accuracy uh, that we apply because we have modern critical standards that, that then we apply to ancient texts. And I don't think that's always a fair way to, to do that. Um, we, we've got to understand the text and read them as they were in the first century or whenever they were written. Um, yeah, so when it, it comes to the storytelling, uh, some some of the, the research that's been done on oral cultures uh, has has supported the fact that the, the tellings and retellings of these stories retain uh, a general sense of accuracy over time, especially if you're doing it in community, because if you're sitting around a campfire and you normally have kind of designated storyteller, maybe he's the patriarch of the family or the matriarch or whatever, and, and they will tell a story. Now, obviously, they're going to adapt the story and change it slightly depending on the audience and the time of the year and, and all that kind of thing. And you would expect that in an oral culture. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't detract from the events that are being recounted. And so if, if someone is, is telling the story uh, and they get it wrong or they mess up a, a certain part of, of the story, you've got a whole community that, that acts as kind of the, the safeguard and, and you know, someone's going to put their hand up and say, no, no, that's not true. This is actually the way that it happened. So there was a collective sense of accountability among some of these oral cultures. So while it didn't retain the degree of accuracy that we expect today in our written cultures, uh, it, it still retained a, a general sense uh, overall of, of the events that, that they were telling. Right, because the communities were smaller, so it's a little bit hard for a lie to get around because, more. yeah. Yeah, and so, so coming to the point of lies and legends and all of that, um, th- th- there are several things to consider when it comes to the Gospels. The, the first is that the culture in um, the first century Jewish culture was completely averse to any kind of legends um, because that was what the pagans did, right? They, they had the Torah, they had the, the, the prophets and, and the Psalms and, and, and that was their body of authoritative work. So it was those silly pagans that told all those stories about, mm. you know, what the gods were doing on Mount Olympus and all the rest of it. Um, so uh, the the first century context in which Jesus lived and which Christianity began was completely averse to any anything like this, mm-hmm. um, because normally when legends spring up, they they are supporting or, or they're reinforcing the traditional values of the culture, uh, and so, so they're supporting the long held beliefs. But but then you have Jesus, who claims to be God himself, which completely flies in the face of everything that a monotheistic religion believed in. You know, there's only one God and he doesn't become a human being. <laughs> Whereas here, Jesus is claiming exactly that. And so you have what's, what's called in, in historical studies, the, the criteria of dissimilarity. So this is so different that it couldn't have just been made up. Um, out of thin air, somebody had to have been making these claims because they're so countercultural to everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you just can't make this stuff up. Um, you've, you've got the element of time as well, so um, it takes time for legends to develop. So you've you've got legends about Alexander the Great, you've got legends about Buddha, etc. But they took decades, even centuries, to develop 
whereas here you've you've got the these gospel accounts and we can get into the dating in a moment if you want um that, that were written within just a few short decades of when these events took place uh and and you've still got the contemporaries alive you know they're saying you know this happened under Pilate. well everyone knew who Pilate was um that this happened under king herod uh, this happened under caiaphas the high priest um, you've also got Jesus' family members, his mother, his brothers who are still alive, and they're believing this. Right? Mm. Um, if so, you've got siblings, you know you're gonna, you're not just gonna yeah. side with your sibling naturally, are you, brother or sister? Because there's always yeah. competition there. <laughs> um, and and so you, you've got these contemporaries living at the time, and there are a lot of different Bible verses that that kind of allude to the fact. Um, what, one of my favorites, um, I've just pulled it up now, is is Mark uh, fifteen twenty one. This is towards the end of Mark's gospel. It says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So they're saying that, that here's this guy, Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross, and, and he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Of course. Which is Alexander a really exciting verse, because it, it's, it's saying that the, the community to whom Mark was writing, they obviously knew who these fellows were, these two brothers, right? right. It was their dad was the one who carried the cross. Uh, so so if, if they were going to try and make up a legend about Jesus, well, it would be completely, you know, contradicted by all of these other contemporaries, all the way up in government down to people who lived in, in the different communities and in, mm. uh, in, in first century Palestine. One thing that I'm, I'm trying to work through in my head right now is, so there's, a, there's an assumed um, knowledge about many of the things, especially in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels and the Epistles, there's assumed knowledge of we know who these people are, we know the cultural circumstances, the political, the authoritative position of some of these important figures or what's going on in the region right now. So how do we as 21st readers who don't have that uh, cultural knowledge, how do we read these passages to try and derive meaning out of them um, whilst having no idea who Alexander and Rufus are, like who are these guys? Like, what's what's the point of this detail? We're so blessed to live in the time that we do because uh, we, we have so much historical material at our fingertips. We have you know people that have dedicated their entire lives to studying this stuff, and and so you can you can Google it. Uh, you can buy a good commentary. You can buy a good study Bible. Um, which is a great place to start when it comes to explaining some of the the traditions and, and cultural values and um, things that were going on in, in the culture at that time that help us to make sense of some of this stuff. So we, we've got a wealth of uh, material at our fingertips that we can go to that, that help us to yeah make sense of more of this stuff and draw our attention to stuff that we kind of just glossed over if, if we're reading it and don't have an appreciation of the historical background. Um, and, and, and that's the thing when you understand a little bit of history, which, which anyone can, you don't have to be a theologian. Um, as I say, you've got the resources. Um, it, it just makes the text come alive. It comes up in three dimensions. It's like, yeah, these were real people struggling with real issues. Uh, the, the issues that we also struggle with today in many respects. Yeah. It's, it's easy to make the Bible feel like it wasn't written, like it was written to some mythical group of people, you know, like, I don't know, but they're just like us, really. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're very different. But at the same time, these are the same kind of people we are. Like, we haven't changed that much. 
you know, I mean, we have more technology and, a di- you know, we live in a pretty different world, but we're still the same kind of people, which I think, yeah, it's so true. We forget that so much when we read the Bible. Mm. Yeah. And you look at the disciples, um, they're, they're probably some of my favorite characters in the New Testament because they just didn't get it yeah. <laughs> you know, over and over and over again. And it's like, you know, some of these guys were, were the ones that wrote the gospels and, and other, you know, may other contributions to the New Testament. It's like, why would they portray themselves as such buffets? You know, yeah. they, they just didn't get it. Well, it's because they're writing sober history, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and they're, you know, they're okay with that. They're like, you know, this is how we once were, you know, we just didn't get it. Jesus told us over and over and over again that this was going to happen and this is how things were going to be. But it, it wasn't until after the fact that we finally got it. Mm. Um, Isn't that interesting? If you're writing a spiritual text or a religious text, it's most people would not write themselves as being inept or stupid (laughs) or making mistakes, right? That doesn't seem like a thing that you would do if you have an agenda of trying to push a religious doctrine or dogma. Hey, Mm -hmm. I think it's like, it's like, is it, isn't it, um, is it Daniel? Daniel is like noteworthy in biblical scholarship because he's like one of the only biblical characters that is actually written without any flaws. Or is that, am I thinking of a different character? Can't can't remember now. Some people have claimed that about Daniel. Yeah. But it helped because he was a eunuch. (laughs) There's less, less room to get into trouble with. Yeah. Well, he was working in the King's court and, you know, I don't know what else he had to do, but study and, you know, govern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So share with us a little bit around around the the dating of the Gospels, because I mean, normally I would just tell people to Google it, but there are a lot of different, um, I guess, theories on when different parts of the Bible was written, and I think in the internet uh, internet age, it is a little bit hard to distinguish what I guess what um, the majority of scholars are actually saying about. Um, the dating of a whole lot of scripture, but I guess specifically we'll just try dive into the the gospels for the moment. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a huge topic as well. But but there, yeah. there is a general consensus, I think, among scholars. You know, th- there might be a difference of like two decades, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, but between liberal scholars and conservative scholars, so it's it's not a major difference. Um, I, th- mm. I think there's pretty much a general consensus now that all the gospel accounts are written within the first century. Mm-hmm. So you, you have Mark, which is considered to be the earliest gospel. Maybe that was written around in the fifties or sixties. And then you have the gospel of John, which was written um, most think in the nineties. Okay. So it's not a difference of was, was John written 323 AD? Like that's not, that's not part of the conversation. There, there were some German, um, uh, theologians in in the 18th and 19th century that that espouse the view that because john his gospel account is just so different from matthew mark and luke which we refer to as the synoptics because they're so similar Mm. um they thought well john's gospel must have been written in the second century um, or sometime later but um there was a a piece, and, and this is kind of getting into another topic, but that's one I'm passionate about: um, textual <laughs> criticism and, and mm. um, paleography. But but there was a, a papyri fragment, a papyrus fragment, excuse me, called P52, uh, which was discovered in the John Rylands Library in Manchester. And this um, this fragment is part of John 18, 
It's about the oh. size of a credit card. And um, that's been dated uh, by, by many, even liberal scholars agree with this, that, that this fragment is the er- earliest copy of any New Testament book that we have. And, and it's dated, some say, maybe around 125 um, and, and as late as 150 AD. Wow. And so, so, so therefore, you know, all of that German scholarship in, in the 19th century was saying, oh, John's gospel was written so much later, um, basically, you know, had to go on the rubbish dump because this one piece of fragment, is, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was evidence of the fact that John's gospel had to have been written, you know, by, by the end of the first century in order for Whoa. this to have been a copy mm. that made it all the way to Egypt. And so for people, for people thinking, well, you said as late as 150, didn't you say that, you know, John may have been written in the 90s? Like, we don't have, there's no hope of ever having an original document. Like, we, we just assume that there must be an original copy somewhere floating around, but that's something that we just should, should rule out completely. Yeah, there's, there's no chance. Um, and it, it begs the question, well, what was the original um, because there were copies of copies made. Paul, we know, probably had two copies of every letter, um, and then there were other letters that were copied again and again that were circulated among the other churches. Um, but, but, but the point of the matter here is with this John fragment, P52, is that um, you know th- th- there had already been a copy, maybe a copy of a copy of a copy, that had, had made it to Egypt, where we think this was dis- discovered um, later on in a place called Oxyrhynchus. Um, yeah, so so the, the Gospels were, were well and truly written within the, the first century. One thing that I found surprising when I um, took my New Testament studies classes at, at Avondale um, was <laughs> the, the Gospels are actually not the most uh, early written um, accounts of the early Christian movement. Um, is it first? Is it the, the letter to the first Corinthians church? Was that the, the earliest that they're thinking or is it something else? Paul, Paul wrote his letters earlier. Uh, he was writing um, as early as the late 40s. Uh, so, so this is, you know, what, 10, 15 years. Uh, it's very, very close to the time of Jesus. Uh, and there's debate about whether Galatians was Paul's first letter. Obviously, he wrote other ones, but the ones that we still have today that survive, uh, either Galatians or First Thessalonians. Okay. Uh, there's a bit of debate about which one was, was the earliest, but probably in the late 40s through 50s. Um, that he was writing. So, so those are the earliest uh, sources we have of Jesus and the beginning of Christianity. What do those sources tell us about Jesus and the, the early Christian movement? Like, not everything, but what, what can we know from some of those sources about, about Jesus and about, you know, the way that the early Christian movement formed? So, so much. Um, you know, Paul, Paul is already talking about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God uh, in majesty. So there's already these very clear divine claims for Jesus just within a, you know, a few short years since he ascended. Um, so we, we know that, that Jesus was divine. Paul waxes eloquent in most of his letters about the importance of Jesus' death and resurrection and so how we can be justified through his death so paul's the first theologian he, he's he's trying to make sense because he, he's been brought up a jew he was part of the, the school of the pharisees so he knew the old testament thoroughly and now he's trying to reconcile well how does jesus fit within this belief system because christianity as far as he was concerned was not a new religion it was just the fulfillment of the promise that god made to abraham mm. 
And so you, you often see, see him doing that in his letters, uh, always going back to Genesis 15, the covenant that God made with Abraham, trying to work out, well, how does this look for us today? Um, how did Jesus fulfill that? Yeah, so, so it teaches us a lot uh, that, that, that Jesus' death um, was for um, the forgiveness of sins. It talk, it, he talks about how Jesus' death um, overcame the powers of darkness, the principalities and powers, and now we're involved in that spiritual warfare. That's big, particularly in Colossians and Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, a lot of ethics. How, how then should we live? And so Paul spends a lot of time talking about that, you know, the, the, the way that we to live as people of truth, people of integrity, and most of all people who are characterized by the three virtues of faith, hope, and love. Mm. So all this time, so you have the apostles uh, and the evangelists, they're going throughout Asia Minor and parts of the the Mediterranean Rim and and all that sort of thing. And they're telling people about Jesus and salvation and they're telling people about the Jesus way and all that sort of thing. And we don't have until the the later decades the actual recording of Jesus's life. How would people have known in the first century about Jesus's life, his miracles, his teachings? How would those have been communicated for them to not have felt like they needed to write them down like right away? Really good question. Paul's, uh, what we know from Paul's letters is, is right at the end, he will, um, he will normally send his greetings to particular home churches that are meeting in a, in a region, uh, whether it's in the city of Rome, whether it's in the region of Galatia, etc. And so what, what we can piece together there historically is, is Paul would, write these letters, he would dispatch them, and then someone would get up and they would read those letters to, to the people um, because there was probably only a 10% literacy rate in the ancient world. And so a yeah, very few people who actually had the ability to, to read. Um, so, so that's how it would happen there. I think that, that with the stories of Jesus, and this is where some critical scholars come in and they say, look, as, you know, as soon as the message of Jesus went out across uh, the Mediterranean, um, people will have changed the story and, you know, how could they control that, et cetera. And, and maybe part of that was what led to the, um, the need for the Gospels to be written down in, in, a, in a more permanent way like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we even know with copies of the Gospels, uh, because of all the ancient manuscripts that we've discovered, the, the bulk of them are the Gospels, the four Gospels. Yeah. Uh, they, they outnumber the rest by by quite a bit so we know that these gospels were circulated far and wide in in quite a short period of time as well which which would have helped to um keep keep in check some of the um things that later became heresies into the second third and fourth centuries things like gnosticism and um yeah so you would have had the story of jesus being told and you would have had eyewitnesses in some churches perhaps, or like friends or family of eyewitnesses being able to actually verify, no, this is actually, this is actually how it happened. I was there or my, my brother was there or my uncle was there and there would have been that going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in addition to Paul's letters and, and the gospel accounts, you, you, you had the gospel, the, excuse me, the, the apostles who, who went out mm. uh, to evangelize across the world as well. Um, in First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about after Jesus' uh, resurrection, uh, he appeared to the disciples, he appeared to Peter, and then he says he appeared to 500 others. 
So it's quite a, mm. quite a few people. Um, yeah. Who, who were who, they? Who could have, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good question. We, wouldn't we like to know? Um, but, but they obviously spread out um, around the place. You have the people um, who came to Jerusalem who were there for Pentecost, uh, which is described in Acts 2. So they hear the Gospels. They've heard about all this stuff about Jesus going on. Uh, and, of course, many of the Jews traveled to Jerusalem for the festivals at least once a year. Uh, and if you read the Gospels, we know that Jesus created quite a stir, um, mm. certainly on one of those when you know he went in the temple and did his thing, cracked the whip. Um, and, and so people knew about this stuff. And, and yeah, there were, there were plenty of eyewitnesses too that, that people could check in on, um, yeah, who, who lived through that period, who would have been able to correct, who would have been able to provide additional insight um, mm. of the life of Jesus. Interesting. So, yeah. Anyway, bottom line is that there is so much evidence that there is, yeah, um, so much that, that, that we can go to that we, that we can be fairly sure. C- certainty, 100% certainty is impossible when it comes to just about anything, but, but we, we, can be, we can be fairly sure enough to stake our life on. Yeah. Wow. Which so many did stake their lives on this. And yeah. to me alone, like the early Christian martyrs is a huge you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go through all of that for a hoax. I don't think anyway. Um, no. Yeah. So, um, well, this has been really cool. I've really enjoyed this. Um, I guess one thing I'd like to I'd, what I'd like to sort of end on is um, there is so much we can learn about this historical Jesus undoing some of the myths and um, getting to actually who he was and what he was here for and the context in which Jesus arrived into. Um, and it's too much to even, I mean, we, we were just talking in the break that we could actually have a whole podcast just devoted to this. And who knows, maybe in the future, it could be fun. But um, <laughs> for now, uh, what are some good tools or resources or, you know, maybe just books that you would recommend, Ben, on um, uncovering the historical Jesus? Um, and yeah, just learning more about his, the context in which he arrived in and all that kind of thing. So there's a heap of material. Um, There's uh, The Jesus Quest uh, by Ben Witherington. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's quite a lot of stuff in there. So he documents the the different conclusions that people have come to, different historians, uh, as as they've tried to piece all the evidence together. Uh, There's another book um, by Helen Bond called Jesus, A Very Brief History, just a short book, probably a good primer, good introduction to um, Jesus studies. Uh, there's, uh, as we've mentioned before, there's stuff online that you can get. You don't trust everything, of course. Um, <laughs> yes. but, uh, but, but check out Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia used to have a bad reputation, but because so many people can critique it and edit it, it, it actually ends up, you know, all the idiosyncrasies get ironed out. And so it can be quite a good source, especially for an introduction, mm. uh, just, just mm. to get a, a big overview. Just like the Wikipedia page on Jesus. Is that or, like the one just just type in historical Jesus um, mm. that, that, that will give you a, a good intro if, if you're looking at the different conclusions that people have come to uh, in the yep. studies. But most importantly of all, uh, just read the Gospels, read the New Testament, go to the primary sources, um, check those out, uh, just read them with an open mind. Uh, if if you, you're a believer, you know, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you because the same Holy Spirit who we believe inspired uh, the writing 
uh, of the Gospels is the same Holy Spirit that can give us wisdom and insight as we read them. Um, but yeah, always to remember that the, the, the Jesus um, that, that we worship and that we serve was a historical figure. He was a real flesh and blood, um, but he's not just someone who's confined to the past. He's someone who we believe died and rose again and is alive today. Uh, mm. who we can have a living relationship with. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Uh, love that. Yeah. Great note to finish on there. So good. <laughs> uh, Jesse, did you want to have anything you wanted to add there? No, I think that is a beautiful place to, to finish it. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, guys. Fun to hang out with you again. <laughs> yeah. Always a pleasure to have Ben on. Um, Awesome. Hey, well, we would love to hear your thoughts, guys, on the stuff we talked about today. Um, yeah, just, I don't know, maybe this, I gave you some new insights into this idea of the historical Jesus, and we'd love to hear about it. So make sure you get in contact with us. The best place to find all things Burn the Haystack is, of course, burnthehaystack.org. Um, you find links to all our social media and even a contact form so you can get in contact with us directly. And this is the first, if this is the first time uh, you're listening to Burn the Haystack, welcome, welcome. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you'd like to help us to get more reach and get out there and get more listeners, um, you'll, uh, the best way you can do that is by leaving us a rating uh, or a review on the podcatching app of your choice. Mm, I like welcoming people to the podcast at the end of the podcast, Jesse. Very cool. Yeah, maybe we should do that at the beginning instead. <laughs> that sounds more logical. <laughs> oh, awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, everyone. We love you. Stay awesome. That is Josh, Jesse, and Ben. Out.